everyone. Welcome to another DevOps Unbound. For those of you who are not familiar, DevOps Unbound is a, a semi-weekly show where we delve into different areas of DevOps. We like to explore all the nooks and crannies around DevOps, and, and you know, DevOps is a pretty big area today, so there's a lot of nooks and crannies. crannies. Um, we do do this show, as I said, every other week, and then about once a month, for those who are interested, we do a live version with a live audience of this show where we let you, the audience, kind of drive the discussion via chat and, and so forth. Today's episode, though, is not with a live audience, but we are blessed to have an amazing panel of folks here with us. And um, I'm going to introduce them here in just one second. I want to just, first of all, throw a big shout out to our friends at Tricentis, though. Tricentis has sponsored DevOps Unbound for going on two years now. And um, couldn't ask for a better partner and a better sponsor to work with. Um, always happy to be doing work with them. And uh, many thanks to them. Um, also, today's show is entitled Debunking the Myth of Shift-Right Testing. And we're going to jump all into that. But first, let me introduce you to what I think, as I said, a really, really great panel. I'm going to start off with Shamin Sh 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 Ahmed. I tried, and then, of course, when I said it, I got tongue-twisted. Shamin, welcome. Why don't you introduce yourself to the audience? Thank you, Alan. Uh, Shamim Ahmed, uh, CTO for DevOps Solutions at Broadcom. I'm responsible for strategic innovations in our products. I also act as a trusted advisor for many of our key clients as they navigate the DevOps transformation journeys. Very passionate about uh, shifting right on test. Uh, so we'll talk about that. Absolutely. And thank you, Shamim. I appreciate it. Next, I want to introduce you to actually, uh, he's not old, but he's an old friend of mine. And I'm thrilled to have him on the show here. He's, it's been too long since I've had a chance to have my friend Chris Riley here. Chris, go ahead. I appreciate that. And I have a beard now, by the way, since last time we talked. Uh, name is Chris Riley. Um, I am a senior manager of developer relations at HubSpot. I uh, really lead our advocacy team. Been in the DevOps space for a long time, and I'm obsessed with the idea of optimizing delivery chains and visibility. So excited to be able to talk about this. Excellent. Next up, I want to uh, introduce a return, repeat uh, guest on our show. I enjoy the heck out of having him on. He's a great guy, Paul Bruce. Paul, welcome if you want to introduce yourself. Thank you, Alan. Uh, yeah, my name is Paul. Um, I'm head of incubation at Tricentis. I get to work in some really cool stuff, work with some really cool people, get to learn about our organization on a day-to-day -day basis, um, and uh, hopefully produce some really great inventions into the industry. Uh, I also am community organizer of the DevOps Days Boston, uh, one of the core organizers there, Boston DevOps Meetup, the Slack group. Uh, I run Olifast uh, every year, hopefully next year as well. Uh, and really just care a lot about uh, engineers having an easy time of things, but also um, learning and improving themselves and uh, those around them. So uh, I get to do that as a full-time job and as volunteer as well. And I'm really great to, to be on here. Uh, looking forward to maybe seeing you at KubeCon as well in Detroit. Absolutely. Well, you'll see us there. We're, we're broadcasting live. All right. Our final a panel member is kind of a guest, special guest star for this panel. It's her first time here, but we are thrilled to have her. And it's 
one and only Nora Jones. Hi, Nora. Why don't you introduce yourself? Thanks, Alan. Uh, yeah, super happy to be here. I'm Nora. Uh, I'm the founder and CEO of Jelly. Jelly is a incident management platform that particularly helps focus on the human aspect of incidents and understanding what led to incidents and surfacing patterns and ways that you can use to improve uh, yourselves in the future. Um, I have a big background in testing and production. I have been in reliability my whole career and I've spent a lot of time with chaos engineering. Um, my thinking's evolved a lot since I first started doing some of those things and I have a lot of thoughts on testing and production. So I'm really happy to be here and share with y'all. Thank you. Thank you, Nora. Um, last but not least, he, he's not really a member of the panel. He's my co-host and partner and friend, Mitch Ashley. Mitch, why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, as always, great to be with the panel. Mitch Ashley, CTO with Textron Group and principal with Textron Research. I, too, have also been uh, doing testing and production. Most of the time, it was due to very tight product deadlines, not due uh, intentions, but... No, we're talking about a new kind of testing in production. Yep. Thanks for joining us, Mitchell. All right, team. You know, as I mentioned, the title of today's episode is Debunking the Myths of Shift Right Testing. Man, if I had a nickel for every time I've used the word shift left over the last eight years, I wouldn't be here doing this show. I'd be out on my boat in some South Pacific island. But here I am. <laughs> I didn't get a nickel for every time I had shift left, but shift left has become almost synonymous with DevOps. Whether we're talking about shift left in security or shift left in testing, shifting left in the whole software development life cycle has become you know, commonplace and, and part of what we do when we talk about DevOps. However, maybe, I don't know, two years ago, we started hearing about, well, when we're shifting left, we got to remember about shifting right. And, and I heard this initially with security. Then I started hearing it with testing, and I'm like, what the heck is shift right testing? Oh, wait a second. It's testing in production. You mean the way we used to do it? And that's kind of my feeling on it. But um, is, is that just the way we used to do it, or is shift right testing a new animal altogether? You know, where, what do we, I think we got to define it before we start debunking the myths of it. So, you know what? I'm going to, Paul, I'm going to ask you to kick it off. Um, and then, panel, feel free to jump from there. Paul, what do we mean? Well, I think there are some paradigms that survive transition. And when I say transition, I also refer to the standards-based version of, of the notion of transition, the transition process. Um, I'm not just talking about like the old monoclose of like a staging environment or no staging environment or whatnot, but like the fact is some pair to like, what are you going to, how are you going to ask an insurance company to run their big fat load test with all their datas in a production environment or even just e-commerce, right? Like now all of a sudden you got to go over to your sales ops person and say, oh, these records are completely bunk and these ones are real customers. No, 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 no. That's what happens when you just port a paradigm and assume that it's going to work perfectly in another place. What we see, and actually uh, we were down on, um, Alan, you and I, I think saw each other in the hallway in uh, Hotel Day uh, in Austin, right? The op Open Source Summit in Austin uh, in what? Mm -hmm. Oh gosh, a million years ago. Was it April, May? I don't know. 
June, whatever. I think it might have been August, but it's okay. It's something like that, right? Like it was a million miles away. But like um, at that conference, one of the things that they were really uh, very interested in in terms of open telemetry was also to be able to, you know, for for some companies like Trace Test, um, Ken over at Trace Test, and then also, uh, who was it? Um, it was uh, Michael Haberman uh, and um, and um, Iran Grabner uh, that run Aspecto, right? These are these are premises that say, hold on, this is not testing in production. It's just testing production. Production should emit useful information to make business decisions. That, by the way, should also be part of your pre-prod pre-roll release process. Your system should be pro- producing information enough where you could easily just go based on the exhaust data of our systems. Is it working enough, well enough, or not? So this notion of like testing in production almost puts it like as if you take testing from the old days and just port it to production, as if you can do the same things. The different things is actually saying, "Hey, look, systems changed, highly distributed, lots of information coming out of them." Why wouldn't that be the evidence-based proof that things transitioned properly? And I think that's a really cool thing. On the other hand, there's plenty of people who still need to prove confidence before they release, you know, because they might not have these perfect sort of canary, like, you know, 1% or progressive rollout processes, don't have the luxury of that, have to go, I don't know, you know, one, one testing is a big thing in insurance. Um, Same thing, uh, open enrollment just happened to Tricentis. The people that support us, right, our healthcare provider had to be ready months in advance before rolling it out to uh, even a small portion of their for uh, requirements and uh, for compliance. So whatever parts of the spectrum you're on, uh, yeah, you do your stuff beforehand, but like afterwards, that shift right is the question of what feedback from your systems is absolutely necessary, no matter which environment you're in. Fair. Nora, you are someone with a ton of testing in production. You know, Paul Paul gave us a lot of kind of what what we're seeing, what what's new in there. But I'm gonna ask you to, you know, pin the tail on the donkey. Is shift right testing just testing in production or is it testing production as, as Paul's alluded to? What what do you think it is? Um, I mean, I I you know, I can't stop thinking about um, a t-shirt that Charity Majors made, which says, I test in production and so do you. It, it doesn't it, it doesn't feel that controversial to me because the thing is we're all doing it. And it's about like your mindset to towards it. Like, are you accepting and embracing that you are already doing testing and production or are you scared of it? And, um, you know, making things in place, trying to make your staging environment perfect or trying to really emulate the load of some things. I mean, like what Paul was saying, some folks just don't have the luxury of of doing some of that. And so I think you need to work on, I think orgs just in general need to work on making production feel comfortable to test in, in a lot of different ways. And there's a lot of ways to do that with tooling, with organizational mindsets, with uh, a bunch of different things. So, um, that that's generally like where my my head is at for for this talk. I actually really like how you put comfortable. I do think it, a lot of it is mindset, and I think everybody's kind of starting at a different spot. I actually think it's kind of unfortunate we say left and right because it sounds very waterfall to me. <laughs> um, and I don't know, seven years ago, like 
the term continuous testing almost stuck for a bit and then it's kind of come back. But from my perspective is you should think about quality and security no matter where the code is. It doesn't matter at the point of feature definition. So it like production is just one of those places and, and creating these artificial gates um, mentally, I think in the teams is, is a big part of the problem because sometimes it seems overwhelming. I know when I talk to companies and I say, well, you know, I can't just like port it over. Um, they haven't even figured out feature flags. Like they haven't even figured out good functional testing. They haven't even figured out good unit testing. Like there's some basics that have to happen first. So we shouldn't just assume like everybody has those basics and they can just do it across all environments. But we should assume that everybody is thinking about security and quality throughout the entire pipeline. It's fair. It's fair. Um, Sherman, sh sh pronounce it for me one more time. Shermaine, Shermaine, look, should we have a stigma around, you know, so-called shift right testing or testing in production? Is there a stigma that's grown up? Because I'll be really honest with you, it wasn't unusual. Mitchell and I built products 25 years ago, and we never finished our testing in time, right? We never did, or on budget either. I always blamed him. Uh, but, you know, we used to continue testing in production even after we released. Um, did we did we forget that or have we buried it up in the attic with grandma's clothes or something right when did when did that become such an evil thing i don't know alan i don't think there should be a stigma like like nora says we've been doing this we all do it um and i think maybe some of the pushback came from more risk averse organizations like the banking and the financial services people who feel that um they just can't afford to experiment with their life systems because it had implications, right? Uh, beyond systems that they could control because these are very interconnected systems, the regulatory uh, challenges as well. But even then, uh, I know that many of these financial services customers or enterprises do shift drive testing, right? I mean, we, we actually run a survey with um, you know, Capgemini a couple of years ago and that clearly showed about 45% of enterprises are actually doing shift drive testing, but, but also more importantly, um, I think, as Paul mentioned, the key thing for us is being able to um, gather insights from production data and, and fitting it back to the previous parts of the lifecycle. That essentially is what continuous testing is, because the moment you say you're doing continuous testing, it means that you're testing across the entire lifecycle, be it pre-production and post-production, right? So I think that's been a, a big focus for us as, as well as our customers. Uh, for example, we've been doing, you know, for example, crowd testing forever. Um, that's a key part sure. of, for example, you know, CX-focused testing, customer experience-focused testing, right? I mean, I believe that you really can't do a whole bunch of CX. You can shift left, but I think most of your uh, best CX testing is is um, is done in production. And and kind of remember, CX testing is very very different than the traditional testing we do, right? I mean, if you think about CX, the feedback is in term in shades of gray, right? You don't have a pass or a fail necessarily. Oh yeah, I kind of like that. I don't necessarily like this, you know. So it's very, very different, right? So the whole approach to some of the concepts around uh, customer experience focused testing is is different than the way we look at traditional testing, right? And also completely agree with 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 Chris. For example, you know, when you 
when you have things in production, your users are giving you re- real feedback in terms of you know, what they like, what they don't like, what they see with their competitors, for example. That's a great way for you to do um, uh, requirements uh, uh, validation, right? You know, what should be part of my requirements suite? Is it only the, the product owner who gives me requirements or is there insights that I can gather from production in terms of what do my users really want? What are they adopting? What are they not adopting, right? What do they like? What do they see with my competitors um, that they would like to see in my product? All of those insights are really part of the very shift left, right? I mean, requirements definition. Um, so so I see this as a, as a continuous process. I think one of the key things that we're beginning to see uh, Alan, more and more is around the, the 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 generation of insights from production data, right? Um, not only do we need that, for example, for for disciplines like test data management, right? You need to have realistic data from production, right? But if you think about more and more of our AI-based applications, they need to be continuously refreshed with data so that the model can be rebuilt or recalibrated, right? The machine learning models, and that requires you to have those insights from the data from raw data from production as well. Also. Uh, for example, we're building our solution around um, how do we, um, you know, predict reliability, right? So if you look at the latest Dora report that came out just last week, I believe, right, uh, you will see that the change failure rate has actually gone up from 2021. Uh, you know, before that, you know, even low organizations, low maturity organizations had change failure rates of around, you know, maybe I think the range was 15 to 30 percent. Now it has gone up. From 30 to 60 percent, and 80 percent of all of the enterprises that they surveyed have change failure rates um, greater than 16 percent, which is very high. Which means that while while our enterprises are going for you know high velocity, deploying more often, but at the same time uh, they have a significant number of uh, deployments going to production that fail, right? Uh, so would it not be better if we actually uh, gathered insights from production? Um, and 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 fed that insights back into a pre-production environment, so we can start to get a better feel for what kinds of deployments fail. Right? Can we gather insights? Can we embed the the, the data from production along with the pre-production data, and 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 you know and and get to a better decision support system for our guys, so that you can actually start to actively predict and manage uh, your change failure rate, for example. Absolutely. You know, Alan, I was thinking about the, the miss. We sort of the title of our talk. There's some fundamental things that have evolved and changed over, you know, since you and I were doing product products together in the early 2000s. You know, one is we have so much more automation. Two, we have a lot of data available to us that has created because of that automation. We are able to keep it now, both prior to it going into production or in test or, in, or uh, you know, in the development cycle. And the other is just faster delivery of software. Now, most of us haven't aren't at the stage like a Netflix to be able to deliver multiple deploys a day, but our ability to experiment in market, or if we do have a problem in, in software that we need to resolve, we can fairly quickly. We're not waiting for the next quarterly or six month release, right? We're living, not everybody is there. I understand that, but we are in a bit of a different world. And those are some of the kind of fundamentals that have changed to allow us to look at testing in, in a whole life cycle of software, not just before it hits production. Fair. Anyone else on the panel? Thoughts? Let me, let me, oh, go ahead. I just quickly wanted to say, I am curious, you know, like they, they don't seem at odds with each other to me. Like they, it seems like a, a loop in a way. Yeah. Like, and so when you are, right. it's not an either or, sure. How do yep. you make that 
how are you taking that and baking that back in over here and consistently doing it without having it be a problem? I mean, I, my very first internship ever, I was a, a QA engineer and the way that the process worked is at a hardware company. Every time the hardware didn't work as expected, a new test case would be added to this spreadsheet and this spreadsheet like couldn't even open on your machine at one point. It was just so big. And that's, that's not the way to do it. Right. It's like, how did, how did this thing even happen? Why was it possible for this to happen? What trade-offs were people thinking about? How are we actually vocalizing all those trade-offs people are thinking about over time and putting that in our shift left rather than just adding an additional runbook or adding an additional test case. And I know the example I brought up feels quite antiquated, but it's also still happening all the time. Like when I see a postmortem where the action items are update the runbook, I want to pull my hair out. Like, because you can say that about any incident, you can say that about any bad thing that happened. It's more, how are we exposing the conversation around how this thing happened and baking that into just our everyday assumptions, our everyday collaborations with each other? Yeah. The, um, Alan, the, uh, the last time I was on, I think it was uh, with Tammy from uh, that mm-hmm. was working at Gremlin. And, um, you know, we were talking in and around this problem of like, you know, what happens when there's a problem? Well, you know, whether you use Gremlin, um, we usually in many of our large enterprise customers, they'll use both combination of like Neoload and, uh, and Gremlin in a pipeline to kind of pop parallel, like inject fault to prove that like the resilience they know has to be there is there, but you're never going to prove all the things are perfect. And that's not the point. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, you do have to start in a place where you are not, you are not literally like shooting yourself in the foot. You know. So what? Though, though I hope and I love the idea that people should be treating their production systems as not just an organism, which it is, but also the living embodiment of their organizations. Right. Mm-hmm. Like the like the um, yeah. that that. Fundamentally, uh, I think, um, Nora, you brought up the the notion of uh, the lessons we learn. And one of the things that I think we we talked about, um, Tammy and I did, was this notion of a like almost like a write once and read never culture where it's like, oh, yeah, we got to do a retro. And then either it's so biased for action that everything has to turn into a suggested action that turns into a task or people ignore it and uh, it becomes a problem over and over again. So, you know, one of the things I, I wonder about is how do we turn what normally is sort of like, uh, Chris, you mentioned the the shift uh, left and right still feeling waterfall. Uh, don't worry, I've trademarked the term. Uh, let me see if, let me make sure I say this right. Uh, bull shift. <laughs> right it's about it's about feed, feedback being right fit at the right times at the right places and also making sure that instead of like a flat paper it's a cylinder it always comes back around right your posteriori knowledge a posterior a posteriori knowledge can become a priori knowledge but only for people who are paying attention to it and prioritizing what knowledge has to be in place to make a good enough informed decision and that's a tricky place to be. So like, you know, we're, we're doing some things and Tricentis Drive figure out, you know, change impact analysis. We've got that um, live compare tool that does it for SAP, which quite frankly is a very baked concrete sort of, 
you know, transaction codes are over here like they are over there. And it's a very well-known system, very well-known domain model, even with all their changes over the past couple of years. But what does that mean for things like custom apps? How do you how do you map out the domain of things that like the change stream, the domain model, and the usage data across things that like I can brain fart out a Node.js plus like Angular front end app and have it hit millions of users in a matter of months. H how do I define those things for any given application that an enterprise might commit, you know, three to six months on? So the, the question is, how do we actually prioritize that knowledge that we have at the right times, at the right places? And I think Nora, uh, Jelly.io, what little I know about Jelly.io, but like what I see and what I've heard and watched some videos on, it seems like you're taking a particular pain point and turning it into what do we learn? This is an opportunity for learning. And I I love that, right? Like that's at the heart of, I love that. So uh, my my question back to the group, and unless Alan, you want to take it in a different direction, is like, what do we do in these moments to figure out how to take a, like a moment of problem? Let's say we test in production and there is, oops, we caused ourselves an incident. <laughs> Don't worry, you, you also already probably have some plenty of incidents to deal with but regardless of where the incident comes from what do, how, what are some dynamics that go into making sure that we've we've prioritized the outcomes that we've actually thought about should we take action on this and how do we do that i don't know where else to start with this group can i quickly just jump in real quick because something you said paul was just absolute gold it's you know we're, we're talking a lot about learning but i think people and organizations learn in very different ways. You said something about write once, read never, right? Maybe your organization just doesn't like documentation and you kind of have to lean into that, right? Like how does our org learn? What do people receive well in our org? How does change get made? Because that's how you have to tailor your learning. Like that's how you have to tailor uh, disseminating your lessons learned and disseminating those philosophies. Like you could write all day about the change log of a thing and how it, you know, gets looked at, but if no one is um, clicking on that and internalizing it and making time to internalize that, does it matter? Yeah. I, when I joined the um, chaos team at Netflix, um, I was so excited to join it and we were working on this really great tool that they had already written some white papers about like, wow, we can, inject failure in production without a customer noticing like that's so cool and yet i looked at the application and the only people using our tooling were the three members of my team uh and so i'm like we're learning all this stuff about our system but it's staying with us people that are not on call for the system and so it 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 opened up a big conversation around how do we get other people enrolled in this? How do we do testing and lessons learned and experimentation in a way that gets people to learn about what's happening and also share those stories with each other? Um, I didn't want to step on your question for the group. I just, no, yeah. That's great. No, well, I think you still addressed it. I, I would say that I was thinking, um, Paul, as you were talking, like there's other symptoms of the problem in, in organizations, for example, like documentation certainly is that, right? 
right? Once read never. Um, but also people who think in terms of like change management and and change controls and and all of that stuff have a tendency not to think about things in a very fluid way. But how do we get there? Like, <laughs> and it feels weird because DevOps has actually been around for a while now. It's been around for a bit. But I still, every single conversation, I'm talking about silos and culture. And like, I think as, as thought leaders in the industry, we're still not serving the folks who haven't gotten some of the basics down. Like to me, one of the things I'm still super shocked about is pipeline analytics is not in every single practice out there. And like, how can you have a, how can you think in terms of resilience if you don't even have the data to measure like how you're doing? <laughs> like if you don't even have that information, like you're not even at the point where you can start considering doing more. So I would encourage anybody listening is like, if you don't have the basics and you don't have the culture, make sure you get that right. Like your North star can be testing across everything, but like, don't skip steps. Although my, my, my little boy is going to walk before he crawls, which that breaks every paradigm ever I've ever known. Um, the other thing I'll say is that what's interesting is, you know, in, in, in the case of blue green deploys, or canary deployments, you could argue that failure is a success. So a failed deploy is exactly what you needed to make a decision to improve. And so I it really, to me, is like people need to get uncomfortable knowing that things will break no matter what, no matter how hard they try, that your users are your testers, that creating parity in any sort of pre-production environment is impossible. And so you need to really just think about quality everywhere um, and not like an afterthought or not like something that you just have to do, kind of like doing your homework or doing a chore. Yep. So from a cultural perspective, um, Chris, I think you know, one of the key things we're seeing is more and more enterprises adopt site reliability engineering uh, and this new role of an SRE. So, um, you know, many times testers very, feel very uncomfortable with production data. I mean, in fact, I don't see many cases where testers actually have access to production data at all, right? Uh, you know, despite um, the growth of AI ops technologies where they can get snapshots and insights. But I think the SRE is one of the key roles we look at that bridges really the gap from, a, from an organization silos and roles and personas perspective, because they need to be working with with all of these different groups, developers and, and specifically testers, and really bring them out uh, of their of their shell, so to speak, because many times we feel testers feeling somewhat isolated, right? So because they can help um, share uh, in a more digestible form, you know, some of the insights from production, what they're doing with their budgets, for example, how are they calculating their budgets, right? A tester should definitely have an input into the whole process because. Uh, you know, who better than a tester to give insights in terms of what are the potential risks or untested pieces of the applications, right? So I think there needs to be some cultural um, bridges that need to be built with the help of the SRE roles and some of the other transformations that are going on to help um, developers, testers, and other, other roles like product owners and product managers to play a more continuous, um, you know, role in the whole life cycle as opposed to say, hey, I'm only in pre-production, the operations guys deal with production and, and sort of break down the silence. 
Yeah, I, I'm glad you said SRE. I think that was the first time we said it in the most amazing practice I've ever been a part of um, in terms of like a high performing engineering team uh, leaned heavily on their SREs and that like I'm not meaning like overworking them. Um, you know, they weren't the fixers. They were the stewards. They were the stewards of quality. Um, the only thing that they owned fully was the tools that were available and the um, what we call production readiness checklist, which included testing. And so it was more about guardrails and stewardship and communication than going in and being the ones who run a script to restart a server. Um, and so, yeah, I think that functions of that sort are, are very important uh, overall. I think you both hit the nail on the head there. I, 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 so much of this is just about enrolling people that have different sharp ends and different areas of expertise into the conversation where things are created and finding an opportunity to, coll to collaborate together. Like you said, um, I think, Chris, you were talking about some folks don't have some of the fundamentals down. But I guarantee you those folks are also still having incidents. And I'm curious how they are bringing in all the necessary people that were impacted by that, like testers were impacted by that, engineers were impacted by that. I think a big group that we don't talk a lot about is marketing, right? Like we 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 talk about load testing and testing and production, and we talk about events like um, your, your open enrollment uh, story, Paul. But um we don't always talk to the end of the business that is <laughs> really understanding those deadlines and the impact on folks. I mean, I don't, this is a kind of silly example, but I, you know, I was really excited to watch the new Hocus Pocus with my nieces and nephews. And I noticed Disney plus was pretty down for a couple of days on the, on the date it was released. Right. And so I'm, you know, I immediately, and I worked at a streaming company, but I was immediately curious about how some of those deadlines and expectations around user management were communicated internally and how, and if marketing and content development was working with SREs and testers around this, or if SREs and testers were sitting in silos and just making assumptions um, yeah. without, you know, like, hey, we have all this data we can look at, we can predict these numbers. And it's like, yeah, but you should also hear the stories from folks uh, on these impacts too. Well, there's, there's two, there's two general phrases that uh, come to mind. One is um, uh, you're only as strong as your weakest link. And at least from my years of doing performance engineering and then moving out to reliability and scalability uh, and then figuring out, you know, how to help a community of people that are regularly getting burned out just by dealing with the crap that their organizations throw into their production systems, um, which is in part a lot of DevOps work and a lot of SRE work. And we need to watch out for that, I say, for my local and global community of SREs and DevOps uh, folks. But the, um, the the weakest link thing is like, um, there are things that you can catch early on. Use the dinkiest tool and catch the dinkiest problems and then use something else. And there are different types of testings. And when we talk about testing, I'm almost like so done with testing. 
working for a company that has a lot of great testing products. The fact is, it's like it needs to be elevated beyond testing and needs to focus on quality engineering and what information people need at the table at the right times. The number of times that test engineers don't have access to APM tools, uh, even for pre-production environments, no architectural diagrams, which, by the way, always change. And you might as well go off to that APM tool and look at the actual service dependency tree. Like the information that we need is beyond just write a test and run a test and pass fail bullcrap um so like the strongest the weakest link um you should catch a lot of your weak links before you actually bother with throwing actual revenue generating or even if even if you're an npo uh large npos some of the ones that we support they end up having large like people's lives are affected by when their services are down um you know critical uh systems and stuff so um the weakest link thing, there's a lot of weak links that you can get out of the way. And then, yes, we should focus on things that just are so cost prohibitive to set up in staging environments and stuff like that. Absolutely. That stuff's going to happen. We need to be fast and learn about it and have the second part, the second phrase that I would put <laughs> is if a tree falls in the woods. Right. And then the follow up is and nobody's there to hear it. Does it make a sense? In reality, if we don't have visibility and I won't use the overloaded term now um, of observability to describe this. But if we don't have a comprehension of what are our most important things that we need to pay attention to in production, um, then backport those. That's where I think shift right actually plays a role. And I think, um, Shamim, you you kind of pointed to this as taking production information and informing not only the testing approaches, but the dev approaches and the product and the like, who's using it comes up all the time on calls for me. So um, if if nobody's listening because there's not information, that's a big problem. So get the information in place. And you know, you know, the game of measurement is like, it's easy to measure the wrong things. But iterate on that stuff and make sure that there is a parity, especially between tech and biz, about what you're measuring in production. And why wouldn't you be measuring that when you are trying to figure out, you know, your next major release has some significant changes that could very easily combine together to cause some big issues. Um, new CPU types, plus a migration to Kafka, plus something else, right? Um, so I would say... Uh, the the two things are first off if if you're if you're not doing the obvious things, come on, there is a maturity factor. And Chris, you mentioned new people in the like people like why why do we have to keep bringing some things up? Because there's always new people. There's always people like it's something's always new to somebody. And so as new crops of people who are new to you know not just software engineering but DevOps and SRE right, come into play. They don't know all the pains and the scars from people who've gone before. So I think to Nora's point, we kind of got to figure out how to um, create conversations that help people gain context in a personal way, as opposed to a right once read never culture. Sorry, that was a diatribe. So, so Bruce, um, you know, widely agree with you. And I think I'm so glad you mentioned the word quality engineering, right? Because at the end of the day, it's about delivering quality and quality is as perceived by the users of your system, right? Yep. And many times we find that we do testing for the sake of testing. You know, we talk about test-driven development and everything. But at the end of the day, testing is an activity, quality is an outcome. Right. So quality should be driving the testing. In other words, what your customers or users perceive of your software, right, should really be driving 
the kind of testing you know, or any kind of activity, right? It could be development or testing, whatever, right? Uh, it's not just about achieve, try to achieve test coverage or anything like that. For example, you know, if you're a startup, good enough quality, right? So I think everything should be modulated based on the goal in production. In that sense, really, it's quality-driven testing, right? That's a key driver in my mind for this whole notion of shift right, right? Because that's really what our customers care about, right? So everything in testing should be driven by the end goal of, of quality, right? Fair. You know what, though, I'm listening to you folks, and you know, I don't pretend you guys know a lot more about testing than I do. But one thing that kind of resonates and, and comes home for me is like so much, so many other things in DevOps, the C word, culture, plays such a role here, right? I, I think sometimes we lose sight of the fact that failing a test isn't necessarily a terrible thing. I'd rather find out about that failure on my testing than when Nora's niece is crying bloody murder because she can't watch Hocus Pocus 2, right? Or when NFL Sunday ticket goes out on me and I'm screaming sitting there in my football jersey, you know, cursing the, the, the NFL gods. But, yeah, and that's the purpose of, of this testing a lot of times. And so culturally, we have to understand you know, don't sweep stuff under the rug. Let's, yes, do the low-hanging fruit, as, as, as Paul mentioned. But, you know, there's, there's nothing a matter with, with doing as much testing as we can. You know, stitch in time saves nine or whatever it says. And, and so we need to culturally make sure our, our culture is such. I mean, and, and it's come a long way. Think about where we are today with feature flags and A-B testing and all these things, right? That's all at some level production testing, right? I mean, Mitchell, you and I, you know, we had Paul Pickney, our UI developer. He used to have to do all the UI development and, and kind of interviews with people before we put the software out. Then first find out when people were kind of bitching and moaning about you know, mistakes we made in that. Um, so I, I think that's an important piece of it. And to the point where, look, change is constant in our business. There's always new people, new ideas. People need to learn. You've got to kind of build that into your culture as well. Anyway, we are approaching the top of the hour here. Um, before Mitchell, I'm going to give you the last word, but I'm going to give you a minute to think about it. I want to thank Shamin, uh, Paul, Nora, Chris. What a great conversation. We're going to rerun this one again. And, you know, I'll leave it to the, the producers here to, to fix that for us. But I'd love to continue this conversation. To all of those at home, thank you for joining in. Many thanks to Tricentis for sponsoring. Mitchell, why don't you take it home for us? Thanks, Alan. You mentioned culture and, and failure, and it reminds me of, we've all heard the, sailing, the saying, failure is not an option, going back to Apollo 13. Actually, that's not true. That's the opposite is true. What People dying was not an option, not failure. We had to fail to figure out how to get them home. And we software is always going to fail. It's just, it will. <laughs> we know it. We live it every day. But um, Nora mentioned and talked a little bit about learning. Every one of those failures is learning, whether it happened the, the moment you checked in code and got our test run to when we did some uh, engineering and testing. 
production, canary testing, whatever it might be in production. I think the main message here though is not only is it a cycle, we need to think about software holistically, the entire, all parts of how we, where we develop it, how we create it, how we test it, how it lives, how it grows and, and matures and someday other rep software replaces it. We're gonna have issues all during that process. And how do we find those things the best we can and then when we don't find them, how do we re react and solve them quickly? Because they're going to happen. So my parting thoughts. Absolutely. And that brings us right to the top of the hour. Folks, thank you again. Thank you, everyone, for watching. Check us out on our next DevOps Unbound. And if you get a chance, join us at a live DevOps Unbound roundtable. They're a lot of fun. Until then, this is Alan Schimmel for TechStrong. Be well. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks, everybody. Thanks.